Shit, yeah. Welcome to another episode of Half Wheelin'. I'm Ross Hill. I'm one half of an imperious duo. The other half is this man, Scott Barrow. Scotty, welcome, mate. Thanks, Ross. Let's get into it, eh? Let's get into it. Plenty to talk about. We touched a fair bit on, or it formed the basis of our last episode, the Tour de France, and uh, we are balls deep into it at the minute. Um, We're coming off a rest day, but it's pretty much lived up to every expectation, Scotty. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, always, you know, everyone always says, it's been a you know, tough tour and all the race, races riders always say, oh, it's been tough and that stage is tough. But it does seem that these first nine stages have been pretty full tilt. I, don't, I think there's been maybe one stage that was a bit gentle and that was it. Yeah, it followed. I mean, there's been parts of it that have, have followed a little bit of a script, but at this point, um, and, and as I said, we're coming off a rest day there's still quite a few machinations that can come out of this and a little bit uncertain as to how it's going to play out due to a couple of factors. And I guess one of them is preparation of some of the riders hasn't been the traditional way that they've gone into a Tour de France. Mm. So that may cause some a few ripples um, as we head into that third week. Mm. Yeah. Your point about um, unusual leading for some riders, and you know, one, as soon as you said that, I thought Peter Sagan, you know, yeah, he does look underdone for his stand in my eyes. I'm yep. not saying he's not going to come away with that jersey. I'm not going to say he won't do something impressive. Maybe he'll ride his right into his legs a bit, but that's that's one example of um, yeah, someone who, to me, looks underdone. And we mentioned Cavendish saying, you know, I'm not near ready for a tough course like this, and so he didn't do the tour. So, yeah, I think that's a factor for sure. There's a lot of uncertainty that's more than ever before in the leading to the race. What have you made, Scotty, about the in, – in terms of the green jersey and – there's been a sense, and I know it's, there's been a little bit of commentary around it with Sagan, although he does have the green jersey, there's, they've made it quite difficult for him this time around. It, it seems as if the positioning of the intermediate sprints, where he's just been able to cherry pick in other years, it's been made a lot tougher for him. And, and there's probably been a little bit more competition from you know from guys like Sam Bennett and mm. Trenton's probably been another one who's been in the mix as well. But mm. they have made things a little bit tougher for Sagan this time around. Do you reckon he that's a casualty of the overall parkours of the course? Or do you reckon, you know, like do you reckon the designers uh, got sick of Sagan winning the green jersey? I reckon they might have got sick of him doing it so easily. Like, he, he would seemingly do it on his ear each stage, get in the break, pick off the points, and then mm. just sort of amble his Come way through to the, the end of the stage. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess his conditioning, as you mentioned, probably hasn't made that transition seamless. Mm. So there's a few things that have probably contributed to it, but it's been quite interesting, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he had that quote, like, you know, I'm not doing the Zwift racing. You know, while everyone else, apparently a lot of the pros were doing Zwift racing, he said, yeah, I'm not doing that. That's not what I, I, I'd like to ride my bike outside. But what was he, you know, what, as we all do, but was he doing it? Was he doing enough? So yeah. um, ho- I hope it is only a temporary glitch for him because I don't want this to be the decline of him. He's only 30, so he's still got, um, you know, lots of good l- l- years left, even from a pure speed point of view. So I hope it's just a aberration rather than a trend because he had it. Oh, last season, maybe the back half of last season, he's a bit subdued as well. So Yeah, he's probably just gone more to a bit of a mere mortal now as opposed to the, the superhero <laughs> that he has been in the past. But he still gives you value for money, doesn't he, Scotty? Oh, yeah, mate. Uh, let's, not, let's not even go into it. He's got, there's so many great things about him yeah. in all sorts of ways. Mm. So we started in Nice, Scotty, and it's fair to say in stage one there was some carnage. Mm. 
it was the stage was won by Christoph. I yeah. just want to highlight one moment where Tony Martin um, and, and Jumbo Visma have probably led the way at the, the head of the peloton for most of the race so far. But there was a, mm. an occasion in that race, conditions were, were pretty slippery. They would have to say the roads were, were pretty glazed and Tony Martin went to the front of the bunch, flapped the wings to slow everyone down and sort of neutralise that stage. And then Astana. Now, Astana... Mm. Cannot be mm. trusted, Scotty. I want to just harp on this point again. Mm. Now, Vinokurov, mm. we had a bit of... <laughs> he's a, what is he? He's like team manager and DS, isn't he? I think he's oh, still no. involved in there, isn't he? So we had a bit of a message, message exchange. What did Vinokurov say to him? Mm. Um, he said, I don't, I don't care. Thrill it. <laughs> so the, the Astana riders have ambled up to the front of the bunch and had a bit of a word to Tony Martin. Tony yeah. Martin sort of gave the indication that we're not racing, we're just going to wait until the conditions mm. start to uh, get a little bit more favourable. And mm. as Astana have um, a tendency to do, they took matters into their own hands and said, nah, fuck you, we're going to go. And they did. <laughs> and uh, next minute, Lopez is kissing a sign on the side of the road. Yeah, and there were rumours that he's waxed the bottom of his shoe just like your wax skis because as he was coming around that bend, that, that left hand, he had you know, he had the two wheels uh, aquaplaning horizontally and he had one of his feet down. He looked like one of those dirt drags that, um, cars that go around the circuit. It was magnificent. I, I thought he did a brilliant job not to kill himself, to be honest. It was a good you know, bail, wasn't it? Was, it? it was really good, yeah. And maybe that's why he's called Superman too. <laughs> Um, stage two, Alaphilippe was his oh, hey, usual. Ross, one more thing. Alexander Kristoff won that stage, as you mentioned. But what we didn't know, or what I didn't know, I'd never heard, he's got four kids. He so, has got four you know, kids. That's, that's one for the good guys, you know? That's one but, for blokes like us, heroes like us. It's a great effort. But it's probably his cycling career has probably been enhanced by the fact that he has got four kids. Like, what better reason do you need to get out and ride your bike for six hours than having four kids? Let's be honest. Yeah, no, no it's the training. I don't set the training. It's the training. I can't help it. You, what, what, do you, what do you want? Do you want me to bring in the money for the bike? You need to train. <laughs> I found that funny actually Scotty he was um, during that stage one he was at the back of the bunch and I think I remember Robbie McEwen on the commentary saying oh Christoph no, he's right, in yeah. all sorts yeah. here he's off, and the then, back, he's off the back of the neutral zone wasn't he <laughs> he ends up winning it my god but yeah. he how spectacular did he look in his yellow kit in his speed suit the next morning yeah, real good really good really filling it out too like like almost like a yeah, just like a big beefy beefcake muscle man it looks brilliant <laughs> stage two uh, Alaphilippe uh, launched an attack on the last climb uh, and was able to get back in yellow. I just want to highlight one little thing, and we've seen it a couple of times in the stages. During the neutral zone, before things tick over to kilometre zero, there's been some riders who have flattered and punctured, had some mechanical issues. And I wasn't aware of this rule, but the race commissaire flaps the wings and says we're not racing until um, everyone's back in the bunch. Well, would it be interesting if perhaps they said, well, bad luck, champ, we're going. Um, you can try and catch up before kilometre zero. We don't wait in the bunchy bunches on a Saturday morning, do we? We, we have to wait for everyone. Well, it's a story there. So you want to throw it in the gutter before the race has even started? Is that what you're saying, Ross? Yeah. It sounds yeah. like you should be on the Giro. It sounds like you should be on the Giro organising committee, mate. In the forms like that. <laughs> Just make things a little bit interesting. And now uh, stage three, Scotty, I, I just want to mm. dive into this one a little bit more because this was the one that was won by Caleb Ewan. Caleb mm. Ewan crashed on stage one, uh, had a shocker on stage two, and then the pocket rocket dead set launch from a cannon oh, in the bunch yeah. gallop on this one, mate. Yeah. He beat Sam Bennett and Nizzolo. Yeah. How did you view that sprint? 
the same way as everyone else did. It was like, shit, that was amazing. And fortunately, on all the major channels, we were able to, you know, here in Australia, we, you know, we're getting the coverage via SBS and Robbie McEwen the next night did a review from the aerial footage, which was brilliant. The aerial footage is the only footage worth looking at in a sprint. If you're an expert, if you're right into it, or even if you're a, you know, Sunday viewer, yeah, the aerial footage is the only good footage worth looking at for sprints because you can get to see what's going on. Yeah. And he was just, it's like he's going twice as fast, wasn't it? And then we found out a little bit later, as, as a lot of the listeners might have found out, he put out six, uh, 1,610 watts in that sprint. So no wonder he was bloody, you know, 1,610, my God. Yeah. yeah. And and the other thing, Ross, was that in that footage that Robbie McEwen showed on SBS, and maybe other people have seen it through other videos, get a look at it if you can, you see him, and I don't know exactly the metre mark, but it might have been, say, 800 metres. He realised, uh, McEw- uh, Ewan, Ewan realised he was too far up. So he let himself just be swarmed and moved back in the in that uh, romping group building into the sprint. Yep. And so when Peter Sagan, who, uh, no, it might have been Trenton and Wendell first, whenever the sprint started opening up, from the aerial view, Ewan wasn't even in the picture. And yet he did that deliberately, which just tells me that that someone is really focused, um, really in the moment, really trusting of what's going on, really picking up all the cues, you know, really sort of in that zone, you know what I mean? Because he came from so far back. Yeah. It, was, it was amazing. It was something like, was it 16th or 17th place or something? Yeah. It was extraordinary yeah. where he started yeah. from. But you're right, yeah, exactly. it was really calm, Scotty. And, and I like how you said he was present in that moment. There's, it'd be so easy in the hustle and bustle of that bunch gallop that you just lose your way and you start panic and start to think that you've yeah. lost your spot. But yeah. yeah, he's not only has he got the, the physiological uh, advantage of the, the height and his aerodynamics, but shit, he's got the brain for it as well. Mm, yeah, yeah, and that's the thing, isn't it? Like, it's not just the physical horsepower you can put out, it's, um, it's your positioning. Now, his positioning, oh, he started off 16th and 17th wheel, but then eventually, you know, where he really launched, he was probably in a good spot. So it's a positioning in your timing, isn't it? Because, like, if you've got, if you can put out 1,500 watts and I can put out uh, 1,600 watts, it's not going to make up the difference between bad positioning and bad timing. So, yeah, yeah that positioning timing. Being someone who rides some crits scotty what did you take out of that or did you sort of um look at that and and maybe um discover anything new that that you might be able to use perhaps in your riding in terms of crit racing yeah the the main thing that i took from it was the experience that it takes like when you've been in a lot of sprints which i haven't i haven't been in a lot of them when you've been in a lot of the ones you can read the play a little bit better and so that allows you to stay more present and so you don't jump prematurely and also hopefully you're making better decisions now sometimes you make a good decision you get locked out blocked in and it turns out that it wasn't a good decision but um just that so when people are launching just sort of that split second pause to sort of see okay what's going on and making it making a like a split second mindful decision if you like and um yeah so like which wheel, wheel to follow do, do I let this person get, go around me and do I let myself deliberately be, be overtaken to you know get on their wheel for a bit and then also that knowing how long uh what's the distance from the line that you can sort of keep accelerating to so for some people it might only be 100 meters it's a really quick short speed and some people you know like a Christoph might be he, his idea this might be 350 meters or 300 meters, you know what I mean? Yeah. He's a different type of sprinter. So, yeah, just that sort of awareness of what's going on around you before, you know, and what do you do before you launch all out? Yeah. 
Yeah. That's what I took from it. Yeah. yeah. No, it's an interesting, um, like I said, the, the hustle and bustle, it's so easy to lose your head. Got to admire the sprinters for that, to be able to, to combine all that skill set in that heat of the moment. Um, I remember mate, he also he squeezed through that gap too. Well, Sagan um, was running straight. He squeezed through that gap on the fence. So it could have all ended up, you know, in tears too, just as yeah. easy. Yeah, and, and that's another thing, the bravery of it. <laughs> You've got to have some yeah. balls to be able to, to actually uh, bring it all together. Stage mm-hmm. four, the winner was Roglic. Mm-hmm. Now, this was after Jumbo Visma absolutely flogged it up the hill on one of the last climbs. <laughs> it mostly came from, from Wout Van Aert, and then Sepp Kuss finished the job off. And I think this might have been the stage where Bernal was overheard telling Kwiatkowski, easy, easy, because he wasn't handling the, uh, the increase in speed as they were going up that incline. So... Roglic managed to flex a little bit of muscle and it was probably our first little side of Jumbo Visma taking the bull by the horns, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, Roglic, um, you know, in the, in the uh, Dauphiné, he won a few stages like that. Like, he, at the moment, he's got the leg, doesn't he? Like, he can sit, he can sit on the threshold, and then he's still got that bit of, quite bit of oomph and power at the end to accelerate and sprint. So, um, he seems like, you know, he seems like he's got the strongest legs. Because even in last night's stage, or the night before, when Podjica, um, uh, Pogaccia, uh attacked, you know, he could easily close the gap as well. So, yeah. 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 Mm. He seems um, pretty Mate, in stage five, uh, the day after being the pace setter for his leader up the climb, Van Aert won a reduced bunch kick due to Ineos uh, putting the hammer down. And this started, although we did probably start the love affair in episode two, this reinforced the love we have for Wout Van Aert. An Instagram post uh, on the half-wheeling Instagram handle where it, it was mentioned that Wout Van Aert, this is his world, and we're just lucky enough to live in it. He is absolutely taking the piss at the minute. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yes, he's uh, very talented. He's a, he's a great rider. You know, he came from three world championships in cyclocross. He's got a hit, you know, soon as his first spring classics campaign, he was finishing in top 10 to 15 in all the spring classics. So you can, right? Um, we know that. But you know that when you're in almost like a form of your life, your purple patch, when the day before you're basically the strongest or second strongest bloke on the whole mountain <laughs> doing the climbing at, at 70, 76 kilo, and then the next day you uh, have got, got enough juice in your legs to win a sprint, uh, yeah, and, and also you're sort of in the zone so that you're making all the right decisions and, you know, in the right spot at the right time. So, yeah, I mean, he's a gun, but he is also in a purple patch. Yeah, so this was the day, Scotty, you might remember. Alaphilippe took a bid in the last 20K, copped a 20-second penalty. So Adam Yates was then thrust into yellow. Now, there has been some investigations in terms of Alaphilippe's actions there. Unconfirmed at this stage, despite our best intentions to get to the bottom of it, we're not sure yet whether it was a sanitizer bidden that we spoke about in episode two. Right. So... So yeah, we're still trying to get to the bottom of it, mate, at this point. But we think we have some reason to believe that Alaphilippe may have been worried about the sanitisation protocols yeah. that were happening and was yeah. was merely just taking it just to be healthy and be safe, essentially, given yeah, the COVID-19. Well, maybe, it was a, yeah, maybe it was an act of leadership. He's like, okay, I'm going to get docked points, but what if, what if I don't do this, do this and the whole race gets pulled up? Yeah. Uh, Maybe it was selfless. It was just being responsible, being the leader of the race, setting an example for everyone else. So we're, we're a little bit disappointed at Philippe. If this is proven true, we're unconfirmed yet, but we hope to have news in episode four for you. 
stage six, Scotty, Alexi Litsenko from Astana, who you can't trust. Now he was a member of he was a member of an eight man break that covered fifty one point eight kilometers in the first hour of racing, if you don't mind. But yeah, this yeah. break, Scotty, this break had some heavy hitters in it, didn't it? Was, had some big leggers in there, didn't it? My God, it was one of the most dominant breaks you'd ever want to form. Nicholas Roach, Jesus Serrata, mm. GVA, mm. Edward Bolsenhagen, mm. Daniel Oss, and Lysenko, amongst others. Yeah, yeah. And um, you knew they were hoofing it when you'd see each guy roll through the front and uh, looking down at the chain ring as they roll through. You know, when you're tired, you always look down. And it's almost like you need to you need to give your neck a rest because you need all the horsepower to go on your leg. Yeah, so... Uh, Right on, they were really pushing it. They were serious. Stage seven, mate, moving ahead was recognised as the crosswind stage. How good are crosswinds Mm. in a Tour de France stage? Fantastic stuff to watch. Fucking horrific to ride in. <laughs> Bora Hansgrohe went fucking hell for nails from the gun to break the hearts of all the sprinters. Ewan, Viviani, Nislo, Christoph, and then Bennett were chasing all day. There were crosswinds galore, and it just blew the race up, Scotty. Portlander, Pogachar lost time because they basically missed the split now. Should you miss the split? Should you be more aware? That would be one argument that may be able to um, be lodged, I would have thought, particularly in the case of Richie Paul. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you the same thing. This is what I, I want to know. Yes, I think um, Pogaccia, um he also got a mechanical too. So he, he was coming back and then he got a mechanical and all that. But everyone knows there's wins, right? Everyone knows what's going to happen. And so why aren't they all making sure? I guess there's, un- there's only so much room at the front, isn't it? Not everyone can be at the front. Yeah. But... I don't know. It's like a fine line. Like, I'd love to know. Yeah. Like I say, surely they all knew it was going to happen, knew it was coming, or knew it was a chance. But I guess if you're not a strong team, maybe you just you can't get your numbers to the front. And so, therefore, you are at risk of getting chopped off the back. As we mentioned, Bora Hansgrove, they knew they knew there was crosswinds. Well done to Bora Hansgrove on this. I loved it. Oregon was fantastic. They dared. It was mm. going to be a big call to do it all day and it, it, almost impossible to do it for 150 plus Ks. But they just took it by the balls and said, we're going to have a crack at this. Whether it comes off mm. or it doesn't come off, we're going to ha- make an impression on this stage and on this race. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. But our man Van Aert, and he is our man, He's he yeah. is the yeah. symbolism of half wheeling. Mm. He won the bunch kick just to further demonstrate he's a fucking genius. To be honest with you, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that was where uh, that was where Lance Lance Armstrong had that quote, didn't he? You know, he said something like, "You know, if I'm in that race, I tell you one thing: I don't care who, what team he's on, I'm following him around because he's not only he's not only got the power, he's got the nose. And, got the you know, nose. Classic, classic Lance Armstrong. You know, just really clear, such effective communication the way he speaks. Yeah, that's the truth. Like, like as I was sort of pointing to before, he's not only got the lead, but he's in the right spot at the right time. You know, that's that's so critical too. And when you're relaxed and informed and you're present and you're not trying, you're just doing it, then. You know, you, you give yourself a chance to be in the right spot at the right time. Yeah. Stage eight, uh, the winner was Nans Peters. So he soloed from the break. And this was the stage, you might remember, where he had uh, Ilnar Zakarin just trying to catch up as they were uh, ascending the mountain. But it was quite confronting, almost. The commentators just openly bagged the shit out of Zakarin's <laughs> downhill abilities. <laughs> 
Oh, it was, it was like... I know, um, it, has been un, it is a bit unfair because there are plenty of other lightweight climbers who are just as shit at yep. descending. There are quite a few, you know. Um, but also, to be fair, um, there is a precedent for this because remember, I think it was the... Uh, might have been the 2016 Giro, the one where Nibali won. Prize White was winning, but he then decided to um, concrete himself into a wall of ice. <laughs> yes. Coming off the spot on the Garvey or whatever. And also, that was the same descent, a bit further down the descent, where Zacharin was following Nibali, or trying to follow, and not many people follow Nibali down, down the hill, but that was also where Zacharin said, ooh, I like those goats. I'm going to catapult myself off my bike to say hello to those goats 50 metres off the side of the road. And that so, goat tackling. That's right. He does have a precedent for uh, downhill limitation. Yeah, it was. Um, it became painfully obvious. And just in case anyone forget, the SBS commentary team, they were going to remind everyone about that. This was the stage also, Scotty, where Thibaut Pino he cracked. He, he had a crash in uh, stage one, but this was the one where he cracked, lost yeah. a fair bit of time, it's got to be said. Um, and yeah, you know when Thibaut Pino, Pino's fucked, don't you? Because he'll let you know. Yeah, so um, he, yeah, he's got the yeah, he's very uh, very expressive through his emotions. The day before, was it? You know, crosswind. He rode well. He made sure he's in the cut, so he's yep. really strong there. Then he loses time here. Then the next day he attacks, and then the next day, which we haven't got to, you know, he's he's at, he's at the back and drops. Yep. You know, he's eighteen. He you know drops sixteen minutes. That's so like you know, in my mind, which one is it, Tila? Which one is it, mate? Like, which one? Come on, man. I'm confused. Look, we know that the French riders have an enormous pressure on them, and he, he does too, but it's almost like that pressure that they get because they are a candidate for winning. He's been on the podium once, but we know, like, yeah, I don't know, do you have the mental, does he have that emotional stability, you know, to just sort of be level-headed? I don't know. We do hear that a lot, don't we? That the French have got so much pressure on them. What what does that do to a, a rider? Like it, it, it just must be so so much pressure on their shoulders. I, I, it's hard to, to comprehend. You would think the elite athletes would be able to handle that pressure, but seemingly they just crumble. Yeah, and and it makes me think of Hino, Berno Hino. Like he would have welcomed the pressure. Like he would absorb it, eat it, you know, you know, love it, but yeah. love the attention basically yeah. because he wouldn't have been doubting stuff. But but. Was the pressure as much as it is now? Like, and I can't remember who won before him, mate. So I don't know. Maybe it's because it there has been 35 years since the last Frenchman won it. I don't know. And then also, if you, I went on to uh, Wikipedia and looked up Thibaut Pinot's Grand Tour record, and basically in the Tour de France, yes, he's finished on the podium and he finished sixth and seventh and all that. But you would never bet on him at all. You wouldn't bet on him. You can't trust him at the Tour de France. Cannot Despite trust him. You, you can't trust him at Tour de France. And it's not having a go at him. It's just based on the on the, the track record. Yeah. So it would be a bad bet, a bad bet, even though he wins other week-long races, you know, and 10-day races. And, you know, he, he's always talked about And last year, before he hurt his knee, he was flying as good as any of them. But it's like, and then, anyway, we haven't got to the stage, but then the last of the other night stage, you know, he's off the back, 18 minutes back, and he's got his whole team around him. Like, oh, I look, on one hand, yeah, great unity, but hang on a minute. Like, Oh, we just what's that about? <laughs> yeah, that's that probably um, best describes the man. Really, you, you just don't know what you're going to get when things aren't going his way. Yeah, pops out. I'll, I'll put my hand mm. up and I'm out. 
Stage yeah. eight was also the stage where Pogacar attacked from the lead bunch of contenders and he got back the time that he lost the windswept stage. Now, mm. in stage eight, there was also something that happened and I wasn't sure. Um, I don't wear glasses often, but I wasn't <laughs> sure. There was a guy who looked remarkably like Richie Port who attacked uphill from a bunch. Ooh, surely, well, no, you can't. You can't attack and counter and, and counter punch, can you? You can't do it at the same time. Well, you can't attack and follow at the same time, can you? I've got the same investigative team that are looking into the sanitizer bin, looking into if that was Richie Port that did attack because it was so, it was refreshing. Scotty, I thought it was fantastic. And you know what? It might not have worked and it didn't cost mm. him anything, but mm. it starts to win a few supporters. Mm. Starts right. to you know, generate some real excitement and that bit of daring doesn't go unnoticed. Well, does he want the half wheel and Legion on his side or doesn't he? Like well, which, well, which one's it going to be for him? Yeah, because we can direct it. You know, we're in charge of that, Richie. So, um, yeah. If Richie, it's if, Richie, if you're listening, we can throw you a lot of likes on those posts. He is a, a big of fan of the show. Things. A big fan of the show, so I'd say he probably would be, and he will attack in the next stage. Stage nine was the mm. last stage before the rest day. Mark Hershey uh, was solo for 90K before he got caught with 2K to go. Everyone in the world was rooting for Mark Hershey. It would have been sensational yeah. to yeah. see him win. I stayed up and watched that one. It was very exciting, and it totally were rooting for him. And and, and that bit where, you know, that four or five Ks to go, the group behind was going to catch him. It's like, And even before that, did he sit up and wait for him and save some energy and try and win the sprint, or did he just try and stay away? So, yeah, he's a bit unlucky to pull Bogart. You did mention, um, Scotty, Pino, he tried to set up a teammate and then he just died right in the ass as if shot and it was off the back 16 minutes behind, like completely cooked. Another bloke who was cooked was Fabio Aru. Now, this was such a public obliteration um, and and I've sort of almost felt sorry for Aru, just the the way it was all happening. And I actually was interested in some comments that came after his, so he's withdrawn from during stage nine. The UAE team advisor, bloke by the name of Giuseppe Cerrone was quoted as this, and this, this, this is not mixing any words. When an athlete is suffering physically and muscularly, some find the clarity and strength to react. Fabio, on the other hand, does not. Aru disappointed us. He has problems, also psychological problems. He doesn't react at first difficult. If he goes down, he doesn't have that character. So not really leaving us in any doubt as to uh, his thoughts on Fabio Aru there, Scotty. How many, how many more years has Aru got at UAE, mate? <laughs> you might want to trade a few of those out. Oh, so Aru's response was he's had some issues, obviously, um, early in the season. He said, and I quote, early in the season, he was pedalling hard enough to break his bike. So he was he thought he was in reasonable form. He had some reasonable performances in the lead-up races. And his quote was, yesterday, talking to the team doctor, I tell him that I was feeling better and I am confident for the rest of the race. Now I am here, stuck in a hole without really understanding why. So that was the life and times of Fabio Aru in one stage. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I also read in that same thing where he said his numbers were really good, like the number the best he's had for two or three years now. So, and you know, I don't. To me, that feels a bit does feel a bit different than say P, uh, Pino, because Aru has shown previously, you know, in Grand Tours and he won the Velta. Like, if nothing else, he's got courage, you know, the way he rides, right? Mm. He turns himself inside out. He's famous for it, you know, with the big horse mouth face. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, not face, the horse mouth expression that he gets. Yeah. 
starts like, oh, is he still sick? Because he, he's had that sort of that lingering illness, that mystery illness. Is he still sick? Uh, who knows what's going on there? It's um, yeah, a bit frustrating. I feel sorry for him like you. I feel sorry for him. Yeah, yeah. It's such a public thing. And it's almost just that vulnerability that he's on his own. He's just, he was sort of knocking back any approach from the broom wagon to, um, oh. you know, to maybe jump in. And there was a little bit of pride at stake there. But yeah, it was um, really confronting, Scotty. So he was on his own out in the road, Ross. And then after the comments from, what's his name, Cerrone? He was very clear that he was on his own back at the, at the team headquarters too, wasn't he? <laughs> He had the double experience. He was like the was kid at the, um, the, the school canteen no one was going to sit with. <laughs> That's right. That's right. He would, have felt, he would have got some good sleep that night. Scotty, is it worth having a look at? We made some pre-tour tips. We both agreed yeah. on Roglic for yellow. Um, so yeah. at this point, uh, things are on track there. The sprint jersey, did we both agree on Sagan at that point, pre-race? I think we did, didn't we? We, we did, and, and I said uh, Sagan ahead of Matthews, and then it turned out Matthews wasn't racing. And in that time frame, he won GP Poulet, and he, he had a good performance well. So he actually had a bit of form, and then Sunweb didn't take him. Yeah, Sunweb, yeah. yeah, yeah Sunweb, Someone didn't take him. So then Matthews ends up leaving to go back to his first made team, Mitchell and Scott. Mm. And and that weird stuff also happened before with, with Dumoulin too. Like, yeah, I don't know, uh, it's a couple of times it just feels a bit weird what's going on there. Like, you got Matthews, who's a legitimate candidate for a few victories and even the green jersey, and he's in form and they don't want to take him because they want to take their, you know, their developing kids. Uh, and that was really weird to me. Really, really weird. And obviously, it was like Cal Unit. He's like, ah, oh, bugger this. I'm not sticking around for this shit. I'm going. Yeah. yeah. I did find that interesting too because there's no real clear cut game plan there for somewhere but they're not in it for the gc i don't think i would mm. think they'd be just trying to grab stages which as you said shit if you're going to grab stages michael matthews is as good a man as any yeah especially for and also the green jersey because he's you know he's in a similar sort of uh, all-round speed caliber as sagan you know like he, yep. he can climb he can climb a bit he can win uphill he can win fast finishes so um mm, weird yeah. KOM, the polka dot jersey, I selected Bargill. Now, he did a little bit in stage nine, was in a bit of a, a select group, and that's about all we've seen from him. Yeah. Who did you have in that department there, Scotty? I had a guy who I wasn't sure was racing, and it turns out he wasn't racing. So that pick has been – that was Julio Ciccone. Okay. He won the KOM at, uh, I think, the Giro last year, and uh, that was what my pick was based on. But sure enough, he wasn't racing, so that was a really um, – that you know, I did my money on that one. And the man who's got it is the Frenchman from AG2R. Um, I forget his name, so um, hopefully he gets bowled over. In the oh, list. that's right. Yeah, and I've been listening to uh, the Move podcast, you know, Lance and Johan Bruneel and George Incappi. Yep. And Lance has made a good point. He goes, mate, this, these KOM points that they're giving on uh, Category 3 and 4 climbs, it's, yeah, it's bullshit. <laughs> he said the guy, the guy who is winning the KOM right now finished 170th on one of the Pyrenees stages. He goes, what the fuck's going on? Like, you got you got a guy who can't climb and he's, he's winning the KOM. It's yeah. bullshit, the way yeah. it's structured. He wasn't having a go at the rider, he's having a go at the way it's structured. It's a good point. It is like, a good how can point. You have, how can you have a good, the best climber finishing 170th on a climbing stage? How does that work? 
Yeah, it does seem a bit strange. You grab some points and then retreat to the back and just amble over every other climb for the rest of the day because you, you want to <laughs> save yourself right. for every other day. It's yeah, really strange. Yeah, yeah. And then the other pro- the other prediction, Ross, I remember uh, you wanted to see yeah, exactly you you wanted to see you know based on the un- the unusual leading uh, with restricted racing before the tour, you wanted to see you know who would perform and who wouldn't. Yep. So is there you know is there apart from what we've already. Is there anything else that's jumping out at you there in terms of riders? There's two things, and I know we've formed two members of a really strong Wurt Van Art uh, fan club, but he's been absolutely electric, and his job's not done yet. He's going to have a big say in in how Roglic goes. But the other one for me is a guy who I think is going to win a Grand Tour. He's an absolute superstar, and it's Pogacar. Has some real balls about him, attacks. Scotty, he's 21 years old. Mm. Um, he's, He's fantastic, I reckon. Mm, yeah. No, he's um he's a candidate to finish on the on the podium. Yeah. Um what about you, mate? Yeah, the the one that I sort of said as I was expecting to see Roglic gain time on a descent. And he sort of uh in that last stage, stage nine, when they were chasing down Hershey, he he was in that first chase group and he had uh Pogacha, Bernal and Lander with him. And they did gain he did gain time. It wasn't it wasn't a descent on his own, but he did he did gain time and maybe there's time for it later. And that and that leads me, Ross, and I don't know if you were going to get to this, but that leads me to, to just thinking Roglic and Pogacha, they are they seem to be the strongest right now because, you know, they're easily able to close gaps and they're maybe attacking off the front, that sort of thing. And it's good that they're strong, but they just need to be careful because it's a three week race and they're only ten days nine nine days in yeah. to twenty one days. And, you know, it just reminds me, remember uh, two years ago, Simon Yates at the Giro, he was by far the strongest rider up to stage 18. Yep. And then he had a bit of a, he had a time trial where he lost a bit of time there. He was, and he said, in hindsight, he could feel the juice leaving his legs. And then the next day, remember, Froome did that attack from 80 Ks out. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, Yates lost 20 minutes. Now, he might have lost that time anyway, because it just might have just happened. But Yates was winning stages, he was dominating, he was getting so it's like you want to win a stage maybe if you're going for if you're going for the GC. You want to get time, but you have to be really strategic about how you use your energy and how you get your time. Because if you spend too many bickies now, because you've got the form and you're feeling strong, you know, in that third week and then it seems like Bernard's getting a little bit better. And then the high mountains in altitude and some of those Colombian boys there, you know, like Rigoberto Run, he's just there. Yeah. And I don't reckon he's going, I don't reckon he's going to go anywhere either. Yeah. So these guys are strong, but just got to make sure they're being strategic in their uses of, of energy, of um, closing down attacks, of attacking off the front, of how, how, how much they use that power that they've got out of where they're already on their red, in their red line going up the column. Is it almost the elephant in the room, uh, the Egan Bernal, that they just see him hovering there and they know what's coming in terms of the Alps? They need to make hay while the sun shines in a way yeah. and they've got their finger on the trigger and they, they're so desperate to pull it. Then they've got the week three sort of thing hanging there and but ultimately they, yeah. they think they've got to get that time when they can. But yeah. it must be so, uh, yeah, almost a, re- a little sort of subtle pressure with Bernal and knowing how adept he is once it gets really, really high, it's just another ball in the air for them, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and like I say, that could be a great approach. Get time now while we can take it because we don't know. Yeah, 
who knows? But uh, yeah, as long as you're being very strategic about it all, yeah. and um, yeah, it's that return for you know return on the investment. You know, I'm using this energy now. You know, was it all worth it? So yeah. that's only those guys can answer that. But yeah, very interesting because I just keep thinking back to Simon Yates. He was so dominant in that duo, and then he just blew up and just disappeared. Um, again, I'm not saying it's not automatic that. He used all that energy and that's why he blew up. He might have blown up anyway, but um, maybe he could have just been a little bit more conservative with his energy usage and still get the time when he can, but not necessarily requirement to win a stage. Yeah. Um, you just got to get the time. One thing there will be, Scotty, which we can guarantee is there will be fireworks come week three because um, Roglic has got good legs. Pogacar looks good, but Bernal mm. will be priming himself. There's no doubt about that. So mm. we could see a real showdown in the Alps. The other one I did mention uh, in episode two, mate, was that we will see Thomas de Ghent in a break. Thankfully, that has mm-hmm. happened. So, you know, all is right with the world. He was, <laughs> I think he was off for 60Ks or something like that. And it, true to form, the bunch is bearing down on him. He didn't want to give it up. He just a couple of little accelerations just to make him earn their catch. <laughs> he's a strong unit, Thomas again. You just yeah, going, amazing. Yeah, he looks like two two trunks on a ribcage. I mean, basically, <laughs> he's very uh, heavy, strong legged build. Absolutely. Yeah, certainly not my. Uh, that's not my go. I'm not. I'm not strong in that way. <laughs> Scotty, one thing I wanted to have a bit of a chat about, and we've noticed that we've touched on a few of them so far, is the young breed that are coming through, how exciting they are. You know, there's a little bit of carefree attitude in terms of the way they race, and it's really refreshing, but they've really announced themselves in a big way so far in the Mm. tour. I just want to run through what looks like you know, the future of Grand Tours in the next few years. You've got Bernal, who's already won a Tour de France, 23, Pogacar, 21. Enric Mass, 25. Higuita, 23. Sepkus, 25. Wout van Aert, 25. Hershey, 22. Nielsen Powers has been in a few breaks, 24. And then even uh, Lopez is 26. Carapaz is only 27. And Martin, who's mm. in third spot, is only 27. There's some exciting racing there. Mm, yeah. So then that makes me think, you know, do you think Chris Froome will, can and will win the Tour next year? Gee, that's a big call. Still capable. It's going to be interesting to see just how he goes in the Giro. We probably won't get a super clear indication there, but it could come back to the Tour next year and he gets the impression that racing's completely changed. Like we had this almost robotic-like Ineos team that would just churn Mm. away and just dominate the race and and then he gets the impression that, oh, racing's changed a little bit here. These guys just attack off the front. They don't even care. (laughs) Real carefree Mm. racing. Not worried about the Mm. consequences of what what that is. So it may change for him physically and and from a team point of view, but also that mental aspect might dawn on him and we might not Mm. see it, as I said, until next year's tour. And also he'll be doing all that adjusting in a brand new team. Mm. So, yeah, um, I'm going to say no. I don't think he wins. I don't think he wins next year. And if he doesn't win next year, I don't think he'll win again uh, in the Tour. And so that leaves him at four Tours. And he obviously wanted to get into the five GC victories to get into the five GC club. So, yeah, interesting, you know, how close it can be to greatness. Because obviously he gave, you know, when Wiggins won, he was stronger than Wiggins. So he could have won it. If he's second, he could have won easily because he obviously was dropping Wiggins. So he sort of, yeah, that was part of the agreement and the plan. So there's one that he got. And then... um, and last year, you had the crash. So, you know, that's, you know, a lot of things got to go right to win five. Yeah, you've got to, mm. got to be made to earn it. 
What else has taken your fancy, Scotty? Well, just one thing, Ross. Um, tell me about what you know about Patrick Lefebvre, the head, the head principal of Decunic Cookstep. What do you know about him? Um, my first impression would be outspoken, passionate, loyal to his team. That would, that would be some, some ways I'd describe him. Yep, yep. And I reckon, um, you know, had one, I reckon he'd take, probably take the money ball approach in that he gets really good talent and they all often move out of that team because for more money, but they often don't ride better. Yep. Um, so he seems to have him and that organisation seem to be very good at identifying and then developing good talent. So I'm just thinking, right, uh, the Italian Championships before the tour, uh, they come into the final sprint, and it was the one that uh, Giacomo Nizzolo won. Yep. But a quick step rider, David Ballerini, he was he was winning the sprint, and about 15 to 20 metres out, David Ballerini started banging his front wheel up and down as he was riding. Oh, like it's almost right. like yeah. a, a celebration. So it's like, yes, yes, I've won this, and then <laughs> woof. Then uh, Nizzolo comes around him. Now we've we've seen this before, like Eric Zabel, superstar of the nineties and early two thousands. Four yep. Milan San Remo victories, uh, nine points jerseys in Grand Tour. So he's a bloody gun, one of yep. the best ever. And he posted up early at Milan San Remo and got done by a rubber bank rider. I can't remember his name now. So he's done it. And so I just wonder, what do you reckon Patrick Lefebvre was saying when Ballerini was celebrating early and got done for the <laughs> U- European champs? What the Italian chat? What do you reckon he would say? I can envisage, and this is probably the uh, the football coach coming out of me, Scotty. You'd yeah, be bring him yeah, into yeah. the team bus, sit him down, okay. give him yeah. an iPad. But hang on, hang on, hang on. Is 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 there anyone else in the bus, or is it no one else? Know, like, well, uh, there right. was. What everyone else, everyone else has been. Cl- can you please leave for okay. a moment? Hey, did, hey, did, hey, do you think he said anything, or they just knew to get the fuck out of the bus? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll be leaving now, Patrick. Um, hand him down, give him the iPad. And then say, just watch the last 200 metres. And then he watches mm-hmm. it. What you think? And then I'd just love to hear the response. And then, yeah. Oh, then he goes, how do I play this? How do I play this? I know where this is going. What do I do? Yeah, and, and you almost just succumb to that. Righto, I've just got to cop this right between the eyes, and he would he would have opened up surely. Mm, yeah, that's right. And or maybe or maybe he's so experienced, he's so um, consolidated in his position, Lafever. That is, you know, he's not he wouldn't be worried about losing his job, so he's not seeing that as a threat. Um, maybe he's so experienced and wise, and and he's had enough success to know, and he knows that he doesn't even need it. Okay, there, you almost just need to you know look in the eye. You know what I mean? Maybe maybe that was the communication, just a look in the eye, acknowledgement both, okay, and maybe Ballerini knows that that can never fucking happen again. A bit like, Scotty, you know, if you do something when you're a young bloke and, and your parents would say, look, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed, mm. and it just cut mm. you right to the quick. Mm, that's right. Yeah, and, and the... the the cinematography, the cinematographer in me wants that to happen with no words, just <laughs> eyeball to eyeball, and and then Ballerini looking for the exit as quick as fucking possible. <laughs> the hell out of there! Oh, I just go do my cool down now. Oh, sorry. Yeah, and his teammates say, "How'd that go?" Oh, he was all right actually. Oh, mate, you're <laughs> a fucking kidding, aren't you? <laughs> oh, because and also for Ballerini, mate. Yeah. As we know, mate, you're one rider in a field of 200 and you might have eight 
eight teammates and usually, you know, usually it's not you who they're riding for, right? Because that's the way it goes. And here he is, he's about to win the Italian championship and he blew it. Like, God, how, you know, it's like, oh, you'd give anything to have those five seconds back, wouldn't you? Yeah, if, yes. if you were a betting man, you'd bet on him never, ever doing that again. <laughs> for sure. What else, mate? Anything else from you? Well, last episode, Scotty, episode two, we spoke about our own riding. We touched on that, Mm. where it was at. And and given the restraints of the pandemic, you particularly living in a metro area Mm. have been limited in terms of of how far you can go and for how long. So uh, with those restrictions in mind, you know, we spoke about that. But what's come from that since that time, Scotty? What what have we discovered or anything new or, or perhaps a lot of the same? Has there been a tail off in our riding or just interested to hear how that's tracking for you personally? Yeah, so um, my riding is very much at the moment focused on training and uh, improving, you know, my my physical capacity, if you like. So I'm doing that indoors, both on the trainer and on rollers, and I'm also doing it outdoors because I can't sort of ride really, recu- you know, it's not, I can ride on my own recreationally, but I don't, that's not what I'm after at the moment. So when I'm riding on my own outdoors, I'm just riding for, you know, training. Okay, so um, indoors and just doing some endurance sort of stuff and outdoors I'm mixing in some sprints. And I, so that's what I'm focusing on. Uh, but I guess the main thing for me is that, uh, how important that the ability to get on the bike four to you know four to six times a week, say um, through this period is um, because you know it's a bit of Groundhog Day. There's a bit of restriction. The energy levels are lower because you can't. You're just not doing as much in the world because you're more housebound. Um, so having that outlet has been really really important, both to focus on, but also the, the physical exercise component of it all. So that's been good. And then um, yeah, just playing with the sprints too, um, mixing in you know um, lot. Uh, light sorry uh, uh small ring sprints big ring sprints and then some biggest gear stomps where you're starting from a, almost like a dead start and just working on that starting strength so just mixing in them and um enjoying that too because the power meter gives you the feedback so that's been good and your parkours for those who don't know are pretty lumpy um you live in, a, in yeah. an area that's that's got some some decent rises in it do you do you find yourself doing those sprints on the hills or, or chasing the flats just to, to get the most mm. out of it yeah a bit of bit of everything not i'm not doing them up a steep hill I'm not doing, although you could you can do that and it, and it enables you to sort of hold the power a bit better i'm usually doing them up slight rises or slight downhills all flat and it's also um dependent on the road the road and where the traffic is because you know when you launch a sprint you know you don't want to have a car behind you that and then you drift out and that sort of thing. So there's a safety aspect to about where it's suitable. But but mixing them up. So yeah, so like I say, mix up the gearing that I'm sprinting out of, mixing up the, the incline, like you say. So yeah, just mixing it up basically. Yeah, good. Mm, yeah. So I'm enjoying that. Enjoying that. How about you? Well, I've been um, getting outside every now and then, but I, I signed up for a thing called the Full Gas, Full Gas being an app, uh, the French Tour. So being held over the duration of the, the Tour de France. So it's a fundraiser raising money for, for Lifeline Australia, which at this point, you know, is a pretty important charity given that a lot of people are struggling. But what it has done, it's um, there's been some climbs in it. There's, there's a lot of climbing. If there's a, a slower or quieter day, there's it's a 
pretty gentle bit of a trot around on your trainer, obviously. But there has been some climbs that have been in past Tour de France. And there's actually the Col de Torini, which was in stage one of this year's. That, that was um, that was one climb that I have done in one of the sessions, which was mm-hmm. absolutely fucking brutal. I'm sure it's probably easier in real life. In mm. virtual world, it wasn't too much fun. Uh, I've done the Galibier, which was a tough one. And also did uh, Lizardi Den, Scotty. So that was um, that was a stage that was very it was relentless to be honest with you and it had me thinking about i don't know if you remember in 03 i think it was lance and jan ulrich um in the Mm -hmm. 03 tour that was the stage where armstrong's um his brake lever snagged on the hands he snagged a handle on a roadside musette and he went ass up on that climb yeah yeah So, so that was an interesting one to uh to ride on those same roads and coming up this week, I've got Von Tour and, and Alpe d'Huez is the last stage of that particular little French tour. So it's been good fun, been a bit of a bit of a different thing, but I'm really looking forward to getting back outside, mate. Mm. So, um, so, so can I then build on what we discussed last time about, you know, what you wanted to improve? And you mentioned your ability to climb and also your ability to be around the mark when the bunch kick, you know, comes back into town, that sort of thing, on tired legs. Yep. So um, have you had any more thoughts about what does, you know, what does the improvement look like? What does the success look like in the climbing? You know, you're saying with, with, with the last election, but have you had any more pointed thoughts there well, so that you know exactly when you're hitting it? Yeah, it's been interesting. I've noticed being able to ride every day, the, the endurance does improve, but particularly the endurance over long, those long climbs, I've found myself being able to put out watts um, a little bit more consistently. And if there's a change in gradient, so sometimes you know you get on a hairpin and, and it might go from 6.1 to, to 9.5 and out of the saddle, and I've found my legs being able to react to that a lot better. How that correlates to in real life riding will be interesting to see. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how that does shift when I do those climbs that I've normally done. So it's going to be interesting mm. to see that rolling resistance and, and all those different facets when you take them outdoors, it's such a, a, it's a bit of an unknown, really. So I'll be yeah. interested to see how that goes, mate. But mm. one other thing I've noticed, and, and I've been particularly taking notice of it because you do get on a long climb every now and then, and being on a stationary trainer can be quite boring. I take particular notice of my pedal stroke and try and get those round circles and, and just trying to mm. almost get in a, a mindful state the way I do pedal. Mm. So that's been interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting too. Like um, I know in my body when I get tired and fatigued that brown pedaling under higher lows like climbing my my body or me i avoid that tension yep. uh, so that that that, that round pedaling when you're climbing almost takes a little bit more tension in the legs and and your time under tension and you're staying in the tension yeah. and that's what a sort of a part of me wants to avoid and uh, minimize is that something like that quality that sort of muscular endurance muscular tension muscular strength is that is that something that sort of is okay in you or you know how how, how easy is that for you it's funny that's one area where i feel if i can feel those or sort of paint the picture that those circles are being created i'm feeling strong once i start to get mm-hmm. into that more that real mash square rectangle sort of pedaling stroke is when mm-hmm. the message gets sent to my brain that i'm in all sorts and, and shit's starting to go downhill so to speak um 
But, yeah, I do find it a good thing to focus on. And if I can tap into it and sort of maintain that mindful approach, I start to feel strong, which whether I am or not, you know, whether that yeah. relates to times that I'm doing it in is another thing altogether, I guess. But it's it's an interesting mm. thing that I've managed to develop. Mm. And have you, um, I ask, you know, is there a rider that you could emulate in the pro peloton? Did, did that come to you at all? Well, given that... about who that rider might be? Yeah, Scotty, at the, at the start, how we spoke about us being an imperious duo so imperious meaning domineering and arrogant I, I've I thought I'm not saying I'm as good but why wouldn't you want to emulate Van Hart yeah. but I'm sort of hinging this on the fact that he's 78 kilos and I'm hovering close to 78 kilos. So we're pretty much the same, you know, yeah. in terms of riding ability because we're almost the same weight. Yeah. But just yeah. to compute you, you that. You have a bike, he has a bike. Yeah, and, and I, a bit of my jersey's got yellow and black in it. So we're... we're Virtually brothers. Mm. And, like, he's 78 kilos. Like, he's just an all-rounder who's a fucking beast. Like, as we mentioned, I know we've harped on him a bit, but I don't really care. Like, his ability to be able to tap out a a tempo on the climb and then win a sprint. I've sort of tried to to take a little bit of that out with me. Mm. And I'd I'd expect that I'll probably be better than him by the time we get back out on the road. Yeah, good. Well, let's let's have a a chat about the sprinting part of that equation for you next episode. Yeah. I reckon by the next one, I'll be getting close to approaching yeah bunch riding again, hopefully. Um, so I'll be interested to see how it all translates. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, mate. And um, stage 10 is coming up. So think about the ingredients. We've got the day after the rest day. So yeah. as Forrest Gump used to say, you never know what you're going to get. Um, <laughs> some riders come out feeling strong. Some riders are dead. Some riders are gone. You know, it's all over the joint. There's that uncertainty of the rest day. Uh, the boys are tired, all right? It's been a huge, you know, first nine days of racing. Yeah. The boys are tired. And this stage is short. 168 k. It's flat, and much of it is along the coast. Ooh, and you, are you saying wind, Scotty? Is that what you're saying? Um, I've looked at the forecast for the region of France that we're talking about, and uh, yeah, certainly in the early part of the stage, it appears that crosswind could be a factor to cause some splits. Apparently, when they get into the town, that their destination, they're going from one island to another island along the coast. Yep. Um, the second island, apparently, the wind forecast isn't predicted to be super strong. So by that stage, splits might have already occurred. So um, could be interesting. The damage could be done. That that's compulsive viewing very early on. So I'm looking forward to that. Mm, Excellent. Hey mate, it's been great to chat again. Yeah, for sure. Bloody awesome. Can't wait to yeah, can't wait to get back and do it again and uh, also see what happens in this tour. Indeed. For all the half wheelers out there, get on to like, subscribe, give us a rate, give us some advice. Yeah. Get onto our Instagram. Yeah, Yeah, Instagram, post anything you want, slide into our DMs if you like. Um, as they say in the mm. classics, um, we'd love mm. to to make it, it as interactive as we can. So we'll look forward to episode four coming up very soon. Yeah, thanks for listening. Nice work. See you, Ross.